Hello and welcome to episode one of our new podcast, The Call of Nature. So this podcast is about nature, but it's kind of for normal people. Uh, We're going to be talking about wildlife uh, in the UK, uh, the environment, all sorts of things. We're going to be hearing from experts. We're going to be hearing from everyday people like me and Pete and Gareth's an expert, really. Um, Actually, saying that, let's introduce him. So who are we? Well, my name's Chris. Uh, I guess I'm doing this because I think nature is pretty amazing. I've worked for a few uh, wildlife conservation organisations over the years. Um, and my background is is really, I mean, I was a builder for many, many years. Um, but I found a, uh, a an interest in in communicating with people about wildlife and nature a bit so uh alongside me i have pete hi i'm pete i like nature i like mountain biking i like uh, camping that sort of thing being outside and i tend to take my nature where i find it i was bang into it as a kid kind of drifted off like a lot of people do as a teenager and in my 20s got back into it in my 30s uh, and uh, now I'm the sort of guy who walks around spotting nature wherever I happen to be, and I love it. So I'm, I'm Gareth. I'm lucky enough to work in the conservation sector, but I really want to sort of say a bit about where I got into wildlife in the first place because, you know, my parents weren't into it at all. It wasn't really – I'm sort of the weird one in my family a bit from that, but my grandparents, it was just mm. part of their lives. They knew loads of wildlife, and they just talk about how much had been lost since um, when they were young before the war. And that's where I really got into it. And I sort of evolved this strange kid who was hidden bin bag, made a hide in the garden looking for dragonflies. <laughs> um, and, and much like Pete, I sort of got into sort of mostly spending a lot of my um, teen years clubbing. But I was moonlighting or the teenage equivalent of that by still being in nature and just keeping it quiet. But uh, it ended up being my life. And I, I never regret it for a minute. Cool. Um well, that's us then. Um, so, yeah, um, we're going to be talking to lots of people, though, uh, during this during this podcast. And uh, one of the big things about it is that we want people to get involved. We want, we want to hear your stories. So uh, we'll talk about it at the end again. But, you know, get in contact with us through social media, through our website, etc. We want to hear your stories about what you think about wildlife and nature. So in this episode, we've got a few things. And next, we're going to have into with Max, who's a, a friend of Pete's, uh, uh, talking about his love of wildlife. Then uh, Gareth is going to tell us uh, a bit about um, water shrews. That's right, isn't it? It is indeed. It's my fantastic beast. Yeah, yeah. Uh, water shrews in our fantastic beasts feature. Um, we're going to talk um, about Dartmoor. Um, we've got a feature called Nature Places, where we're going to talk about some of the great places you can go to see wildlife. So Pete's going to tell us a bit, a bit about Dartmoor. Then we've got an interview with a friend of ours uh, called Gemma, who is an environmental planner and works uh, with green spaces, um, which is really, which was really cool actually. A good chat. Um, and then we're going to talk about birdsong. Uh, so we've got a feature where we talk about nature sounds, basically. Um, did we have another name for that, chaps? Animal noises. Animal noises. That's the that's one. It. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's much better than birdsong. So animal noises. Uh, uh, so I'll tell you a little bit about swifts. And that's it. So um, uh, Pete, tell us about your chat that you had with Max. Well, I will. 
Max is an old mate of mine, known him for well over 30 years, but lost contact with him for maybe 27, 28 of those. Met up on Facebook, and then when I moved to Exeter, discovered he lived just down the road. So we've been hanging out and uh, and having a laugh, looking at wildlife, talking about music, that sort of thing. Uh, so I recently spoke to Max about his love of nature, his experiences of it. We were still under full lockdown at the time, and I should tell you that the sound quality is a bit up and down because uh, uh, we were just learning what we were doing, and we were on 4G in a rural area. But we're learning as we go, so bear with us, folks. And here it is. Hi, Max. Thanks for joining me today. Pleasure to be here, Pete. Nice to chat. Well, always nice to chat with you, Max. And uh, as you know, Chris, Gareth and I are starting a podcast called The Call of Nature, and you're going to be the first person we've interviewed, Max. Well, that was a a foolish move in the first case, wasn't it, getting me involved? (laughs) I guess we'll see, won't we? So the other so I asked you to think of a really special wildlife experience, which uh, which you can tell us about. Was this a, a deliberate thing? Did you go out looking for this experience or was it when you were doing something else? No, no, it was literally uh, out of the blue and it left the group that we were with um, quite perplexed as to what was actually occurring at the time. I live quite close to the ex-estuary here uh, in South Devon, uh, not far from Exeter. And um, a group of uh, friends and I, we were fishing on the banks of the estuary Coming up to dusk, and you know, there's all sorts of stuff going on at that time. You know, we've we've had hummingbird, um, hummingbird hawk moths. I think that's what they're called. Right. You know, we've seen we've seen families of otter coming in and out of the estuary, kingfishers. You know, landing in close by. You know, the place is wild um, as you like. You know, osprey and all the waders and wildfowl you could ever want. This particular uh, situation happened when we were fishing, just coming up to dusk. And one of the group noticed in the water, you know, just far enough away to sort of uh, be out of really good eyesight, what appeared to be um, a fish um, floating upside down. Now, what would that say to you, Pete? What would, what would that? I, I'd, I'd assume that I was watching a dead fish float past. Exactly that. So that, <laughs> that was the first take. But then we noticed that the actual, this dead fish, which we were looking at, was probably going to be a flounder, we thought was actually heading against the tidal flow upside down. Ah, so, mysterious. Yeah, so as the light was getting dimpsy and it was just tantalisingly out of view, you know, we were kind of watching in. It was kind of going up the tide and kind of floating back down. So we, we eventually sort of kind of went, well, no idea. We'll, we'll, we'll just forget that ever happened. We were thinking it was like a ghost fish, you know? <laughs> Anyway, after a couple more casts, uh, actually it came close enough now to the bottom of the, you know, of the, the side of the bank where we were fishing that we could get a better look at it. And it actually transpired. It was, it was, it was a squid or a cuttlefish that had actually wrapped its tentacles around the flounder, which was, really? you know, yes, yeah, presumably still alive. And, uh, and it was actually eating the flounder while it was alive in the ex-estuary. And it was just, it was quite alarming to finally work out what was going on. Wow. That, so that's incredible. I've never seen anything like that close to the shore. I wonder if that's a common thing to see. Well, it turned out that two weeks after that, I was um, randomly chatting to some people on, we were walking up and down the ex. Um, and they actually seen an octopus out there on one of the sandbars as well. So uh, I think it just goes to show just how diverse the wildlife is in the ex-estuary and, and, you know, cephalopods. Lovely. <laughs> it's particularly amazing that you saw, you know, you and these others have seen creatures like that when you weren't even going out looking for them, isn't it? This is it, yeah. 
Uh, and I, just, I don't know how regular that sort of an occurrence is, but to, to me, it felt like quite a wild sort of interact, a wild interaction, seeing nature in all its uh, gory, <laughs> goriness playing out in front of our very eyes. Well, this is wildlife on one sort of level stuff, isn't it? Yeah. And, and how did the group react? So, did you have people with you who were really into nature, or were, were they just, were they mainly fishermen? Or, or, as, or were, as fishermen, you know, it was the, the the fish was acting completely bizarrely. You know, we just <laughs> we couldn't pin it down. It's just it, it didn't seem logical what we were actually looking at. And then when we ascertained it was being you know predated upon by this cuttlefish or squid I couldn't really make it out um that it was just a bit of a shock really yeah I'm, I'm sure it was and and uh is this how you generally take your nature uh, max are you a guy who goes out you know deliberately spotting stuff or is it more that you enjoy it when you're out doing other things and I, I tend to have a pair of binoculars with me most days you know if i if yeah. i know i'm going somewhere where there could be a, any chance of a a glimpse of something a bit different, you know, but say, no, I sit in the garden with my, with my binoculars and enjoy, you know, you've just, you, you garden birds. Yeah, and, uh, got, yeah. So yeah, I, I, I tried to, but this one was just, you know, out of the blue, didn't know what to expect. Well, that sounds really amazing. Uh, I, I'd, I'd love to see that, uh, despite the fact that predation's never pleasant, to, you know, never enjoyable to watch, is it? It's, it's all part of the natural order, isn't it, mate? That's exactly it. Um, and, you know, my, my daughter was really lucky enough that she'd actually seen an osprey, you know, stoop down and, and take a fish from the estuary there with my binoculars amazing. as we were walking there one day as well. So, you know, I, it's, I think she found it quite an exciting, you know, spectacle. But yeah. ultimately, at the end of the day, when you see the fish rudely plucked out of the uh, out of the water and <laughs> now at, at seventy five feet on its way to uh, to the dinner table, they have better luck than I, the ospreys, <laughs> when it comes to fishing. <laughs> I'm sure that's down to luck, Max. <laughs> <laughs> what would you say to those uh, those listeners who don't currently get out and, and enjoy nature? What, what would you what would be your rallying call to them? What, what's in it for them? I, 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 what I feel is that you, you shouldn't have to, as you said, I don't think you need to really go out of your way. I just think you need to look a little bit closer at the finer details and also, you know, use your ears because, um, you know, changes in, in, in birdsong patterns can indicate other things happening in the area. And then if you keep your eye open, then, you know, things can change in an instant. So I, I personally don't think you need to go out the way by yourself and, you know, all the gear and expensive bits and pieces or travel a million miles to really get a, an exciting wildlife experience. I think, you know, look close to home, especially considering where we are, this, uh, this uh, unprecedented event that's happening with us at the minute. Yes, uh, that's true. Yeah, but, that's, uh, I was just thinking there's no going down the estuary for me at the moment unless I want to do a 10-mile exercise walk. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and and I think that's wonderful, Max. Thank you. And 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 I loved hearing about the experience of your daughter seeing the osprey. I guess incidents like that they're great for connecting children to the to the realities of the world around them, aren't they? Absolutely. I think you know whether she. I think it seeps in subliminally. You know, if uh, they don't, she hasn't shown a massive interest. But I think you know, for example, a minute ago in the garden. Um, I think it was a, a violet oil beetle. We found mm. one of those and we we're just you know, having a real close up look to that. You know, she might not have taken amazing notice about, you know, it's, it's, 
particular biology, ecology, where it's come from, what it feeds on, you know, nothing going into those, into that depth. But just um, to see it, I think will have a knock-on effect further down the line and just to see, you know, beauty and everything that's around us. Well, that's that's lovely, Max. That's lovely. And as we know, we need to get the kids involved, don't we, if the future of nature is to be protected. Agreed. Agreed on that one. But, um, you know, I've, I, I have high hopes. I do. I think that there might be a change in the wind, you know, with uh, with us as humans, practice uh, and how we sort of behave and interact with the. Uh, our, our surrounding nature and mm. you know, give it a little bit more respect I think I think that would be nice to see well I think that's a message we can all agree with Max so uh, thank you very much for sharing experiences with us today uh, uh, that, that was lovely thank you yeah it's lovely to chat Pete um, good luck with everyone if you're out there and you are you are going to go on a nature I mean you never know what's going to be around the corner but well said mate well said well, there we go. That was a that was a really nice thing to listen to. Um, I've met Max once before, once or twice before, I think. And yeah, he's a really cool guy. Um, uh, one thing uh, I was thinking about, he mentioned uh, cephalopods, which uh, I don't quite know what that means. Uh, Doctor Gareth, maybe you could enlighten us. <laughs> well, it's a bit more uh, marine than I'd normally be involved with, but um, I used to actually do sort of help a bit of part-time curation of this, this zoological museum randomly that happened to have like more cephalopods than anything else in it. So they come from a, a sort of a, a bigger group of animals like the mollusk, which is what you see sort of sails and you see snails and things like that. And actually it got to a point where sort of having like a big hard shell on the outside wasn't so advantageous as actually being quite smart. And so you ended up with the, your octopuses, your, your squids, your cuttlefish, and that's what the cephalopods are really. And they're sort of basically, they sort of chose like their strategy was let's go for intelligence over like outer uh, armour but there's a few ones like this is an amazing one I remember called the chambered nautilus and it's worth having a google of the shell of them it's it's fantastic cell the chambered nautilus anyway that's what a cephalopod is whoa <laughs> that was a big answer to that was more of an answer than I was expecting off the cuff yeah well played um, yeah that's great um, and actually that links us in really nicely to um our next feature, which we're going to have on every episode, uh, hopefully that's the plan, where um, one of us talks to you about um, some fantastic creatures. And I believe, Gareth, you're going to tell us a little bit about uh, the shrew. Is that right? Yeah, I was, I was thinking about calling this um, Fantastic Beats and where to find them. But firstly, I, I thought that wouldn't start off our non-suing thing early. But uh, <laughs> it's also, shrews are quite difficult to find. So um, yeah, just... Here's my little bit about shrews and why they are difficult to find, but why it's worth it. Right, Pete and Chris, the species I want to showcase for you today is a fantastic small mammal called the water shrew. Now, I think of them a bit like angry clangers because they've got this small, hairy, pointed snout that wiggles about furiously when it's searching for food or when I've been trying to survey them in the past for my fingers to bite. But I have a fantastic affinity for them. They're not very big, they're about 10 centimetres long, but that still makes them the biggest shrew in the UK. Now they've got a jet black coat over the back and a quite a white underbelly. And what makes them really distinctive from other shrews in the UK is they have these stiff white hairs along their tail. Because when they're underwater, the tail acts a bit like a rudder to help propel and steer them along. They can live for three years, but it's a fairly precarious existence. So you think of other small mammals like wood mice and bank voles, which can go around searching for nuts and things like that, which are relatively easy to come by. Well, shrews have to search for insect prey, so things that can get away. So they're a very small example of a predator. And you know how I love predators. 
So in the water shrew's case, it's even harder because they're hunting for aquatic things like stoneflies and dragonfly larvae. And so the food that they're looking for can quite easily escape downstream. They also sometimes go for things like small fish, so stickleback, they can get frogs and newts as well. So this is fantastic ability. And you're probably thinking, well, how does something so small that isn't perfectly adapted to living underwater manage to capture things that are? Well, they have a secret weapon up their sleeve and it's a venomous saliva, which is fairly innocuous to humans. But if you're a frog or a fish or an aquatic invertebrate, once they've bitten you, it really affects the muscles, in particular the heart muscles. So I've always imagined it as a bit of a Kill Bill moment where the shrew bites you and as you walk away, you slowly get incapacitated so they can catch up with you. There's other ways they hunt underwater as well. So they use motion to detect the prey. So anything that fits away, they might chase. They have this sort of uh, flush and pursuit method. Um, They also use that air bubble method that we heard about a few years ago where otters were breathing out air bubbles capturing a bit of scent and then sucking it back in to help hunt underwater well shrews do this as well and it's a fantastic part of their their arsenal for hunting food now they can be found in anywhere that there's a little bit of dampness so wet grasslands canals ditches rivers and we think they're sort of fairly widely spread across the uk in fact They can be found from North Spain, across Europe, across into Russia and even as far east as China. But they're really difficult to find. And that's why we know so little about them compared to other species, because they're really hard to study. But one of the things that I found that was really fascinating that has been found about them is when water shoes are young, if they're undernourished, it affects their spatial navigation later in life. So... Imagine us, you know, out for a night out, you've had a few beers and you sort of maybe wavering around a little bit, but then you find yourself a bag of chips or something to nourish you and it really does help to sort of set your course. Well, that's kind of what water shoes do from a young age is that if they have that food, they're much better at being able to navigate around and find platforms and things like that. Um, But if they're undernourished at that crucial stage, it affects them for life. So it shows that early development is important in all species. And this is an example of that. Well, there we have it. That, that's the water shrew. What, what do you think of that little fella? Amazing. I never even heard of them before. Yeah. Where, 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 can, are they common? Can you find them everywhere, Gareth? Well, like I say, it's anywhere that's a little bit damp, really. I remember it took me years and I used to do loads of small mammal trapping for research and stuff like that. And like, I was actually teaching a class at the time and um, it sort of, yeah, it'd been quite a hard day. Eventually, a lot of these, like, you have these live traps for animals where you're monitoring them and they have lots of food. And so it's, it's really, like, kind to the animal. But it's the end of the day, sort of pick one up, and I was sort of thinking, there's something quite lively in here. And sort of opened it up, put it into the bag to look at it, and it came straight at me. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, for your eyes, and, <laughs> and it was a, it was a water shrew, and I was like, I was absolutely made up, and it was brilliant. Um, but that was yeah. just like a damp. It's like a, sort of what you'd think of like a a grassland, probably this winter, you know, which is like not normally underwater, but just boggy. So there we go, water shrews. That's fascinating. Thank you, Gareth. So. Uh, now, a bit like all the features on the Call of Nature, the uh, the fantastic creatures is one that we want you folks at home uh, to step up and contribute to uh, yourselves. So, anything you know about those, uh, about any creatures that you think people will find interesting, we'd love to hear from you. And an- another feature like that is the one I'm going to talk about next, and that's nature places. Now, Gareth's an expert. I'm going to tell you, I'm not an expert. I moved down to Devon a couple of years ago. Uh, and, uh, and one of my favourite places down here is Dartmoor. Now, I should stress, Dartmoor is currently closed and there's no point trying to get there at the moment because if you do, you'll get stuck in a traffic jam with all the other people who are going there anyway. 
so I can't stress it enough. <laughs> Please don't go to Dartmoor at the moment. But I'm just going to tell you a little bit of pla- about a place that I've discovered, a couple of places, in fact, that I've discovered and really love visiting uh, so that another day maybe you'd like to go and visit them. And once again, if you know a great place, a city, a nature reserve, anywhere, we'd love to hear from you. So Dartmoor, like I say, it's one of my favourite places. I'm going to focus quickly on Hay Tor and uh, Yarna Wood, which are a couple of places that I've got to know. Dartmoor is a huge area of upland in Devon. And one of the famous places you can go to is, is Hay Tor, and that's that's where you tend to take your mates who come down to the area to stay. They've seen it on postcards. Uh, there's a car park nearby. You can get an ice cream. And I'd heard when the first time I went up there, people at work telling me that you could still hear cuckoos up there, which is a bird that I really miss. I used to hear them a lot as a kid. So I think it was yeah, it was when my sister came down with her kids. We took my little boy up there and her kids. And as soon as we got there, we heard a cuckoo, which was great because it made me look like I know what I'm talking about. Uh, but then guess what happened next first of all one flew past and then another and before we knew it at the car park before we'd even left the car we had two cuckoos flying around us and it was just an amazing experience so i don't know the last time you two guys saw some cuckoos years ago yeah i, haven't, I don't feel i've just heard a few but never really seen them well mm. i guess uh, uh, if you manage to go to hay tour when it's open not now uh, then maybe that's a place you could go to see them. And the other place I, that, I, that I want to tell you about is just around the corner, and that's a place called Yarna Wood. Uh, again, it was recommended uh, to me by people at work. It turns out it was England's first nat- uh, national nature reserve. It's also a triple SI, a site of special scientific interest, uh, and it's now part of the East Dartmoor nat- uh, Nature Reserve. And I want to tell you, folks, it's stunningly beautiful. It's run by Natural England, and I think the Woodland Trust have a hand in it as well. It's uh, one of the best examples, apparently, of ancient oak woodland in the whole of Europe. And it's just great. You turn up, park the car, you can pick up a trail map, and every it's just crawling with wildlife. And, and what's really nice is there's a hide attached to the car park where you can see one of my uh, uh, favourite birds, which is the nuthatch. And they just they come down onto the feeders. Years ago, they were really really aggressive, and they, they, they were well known for chasing off all the other birds before they'd feed at a feeder. But these days, I think they've realised, cut their losses, they just join in with everybody else. So there you go, boys. Dartmoor, Haytor, Yarna Woods, don't go there at the moment because you're not allowed. <laughs> for one day, for Indeed. one day, go there. Indeed. Sounds good. So that's it for Dartmoor. And now we're going to have a chat with uh, Dr. Gemma Jerome, or Gemma, as me and Chris have known her for a few years now. Um, she's a friend of ours, but she works in green uh, spaces. So she's a, a planner. So she looks at when you're building new cities or towns, where you put the green space and how important to think about this for, for wildlife and for people. And uh, it's a really interesting conversation about all things like that. She's born and brought up in Manchester, but she's been all around the country doing this. Um, so let's see what she has to say. Hi, Gemma, and uh, thanks for joining us today. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, you're welcome. Your speciality is like uh, around sort of green spaces and buildings. Maybe you could just tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. Um, so I work in planning and development. Uh, that is true. Um, what that basically means is I'm like the person who... Uh, sits around the table um, and whilst we're looking at all of the plans and drawings of the new housing development or the new um, office block or even the whole new town that's being designed and I'm the person who um, 
brings through ideas about how to make it better for nature. So how do we build nature into development rather than seeing development as something that comes along and just tarmacks over everything? Um, actually, there's loads of green stuff all around us all the time. People love it. It's great for how we feel uh, and it's also home to loads of wildlife. So how do we actually keep what we've got and make more of it? Um, that's that's what I do. Yeah, that's well. It sounds really interesting. I, I know, um, you know, a lot of people have been spending quite a bit of time indoors uh, lately, um, enforced with um, with this uh, pandemic we seem to be going through. Yeah. Um, but going out for exercise walks a lot more, and and hopefully actually getting to discover. Um, maybe bits of local green space that they didn't know existed before or yeah yeah I think that kind of nature on your doorstep um that story keeps you know I keep hearing that story being told and I think it's a really nice one that captures the mood right now that doing a little bit of exploring really close to where you live um and people I think are recognizing how they walk past stuff every day that's really interesting or really beautiful or full of you know full of life and they just hadn't stopped to notice before so yeah discovering nature on your doorstep is is a really um I think huge theme right now um and and I hope it continues really because it's interesting because the work I do actually Chris um it's underpinned by all this evidence all this research um that um, you know, clever people the universities have done that then makes us more sure about what our instinct was anyway. <laughs> and yeah. um, the the research shows that actually, um, in terms of nature being good for people, so actually having like a measurable impact on our on our physical bodies or our or our minds, um, so our mental health, um, it's the biggest the biggest impact um, is from the nature that's all around us, right where we are, like right where we live, or around yeah. you know um, it's it's not necessarily jumping in your car or jumping on a train and going out to a a nature reserve or a big national park which is lovely to do and who doesn't like going down to the coast Mm. or but it's that like being able to see a tree from your window or um the you know the 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 the, like hedges around the the playground at school that's where you're gonna like find the most and explore the most um so yeah it's really interesting do you think Gemma like coming out of this experience people are like going to demand a bit more of like this, the green spaces near them because like I don't know about you but like, like having a garden I've got a small garden lucky has been getting me through this but I was thinking there's lots of people who don't have gardens and yeah. I, I often walk past sort of through like housing estates and things like that and see oh, it's a really sort of mundane mown grass and do you think now people are a bit more aware of actually I want something more than that? Yeah I think that's a really really good point and I you know I really hope that is what comes out of this really interesting and then those who are going out um like you're saying Gareth are they are they kind of then thinking god I've been missing out all this time you know this field at the back of my house here um actually like you were talking about butterflies there's loads of butterflies there's loads of interesting flowers out right now there's you know when it's sunny you can really just enjoy being out there I think what people might start asking for more of is um 
spaces that where they can um, be in nature that isn't like really, really highly um, manicured. And, you know, it's not just the local park, um, which has really kind of dilapidated play equipment um and the grass is just mown to within an inch of its life every you know few weeks um i think what's really nice is hearing stories of people who are noticing um stuff at the edges and um i think that might be about making more space for nature but it might be as simple as well actually how are we um managing the spaces we've got you know maybe we don't need to be on nature's case all the time (laughs) keeping it looking a certain way and you know councils I live in Stroud and you know I know a few people who work at the council and they're so 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 busy mowing grass is definitely not priority and it's just really interesting seeing how people react to that at first they're like uh, you know, if that happened normally, they'd go, they'd be straight on the phone, like, it's a complete, uh, <laughs> complete mess out there. What are you doing? <laughs> yeah. And now they're like, oh, okay, yeah, I get it. They're not doing it. And actually, God, I never knew there was all those flowers in my lawn, you know, or on that verge, you know, at the side of the path where I walk down every day. And I think this is really, really interesting time for that. It might be becoming a bit of a trend, but but within councils and or, or places that manage parks and open spaces a little bit as well, um, it is a lot cheaper to not employ, you know, people to go around keeping things neat. But maybe you just have to like when I was living in Liverpool and um, like austerity hit, and there's all these public sector funding cuts, and you know the parks the parks budget. Um, was slashed by at least half and I think it went down further after that and um, so they just couldn't do as much maintenance as they wanted but they just they decided there'd be areas they cut and areas that they wouldn't and then they'd like leave little signs around saying look these areas are not cut they didn't say because we have no money (laughs) because now we're creating these spaces for wildlife and they kind of made it pretty beautiful as well like doing little you know waves and wiggles around with the mower but I just think um we do have to find different ways and I wonder whether as you know as we come out of this um we can we can keep some of that like attention that people now have you know people are just being way more attentive uh because they're not rushing around everywhere and you know the other thing I noticed around where I live as well. There's some like the council come and 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 mow the verges, and actually they did do the other day. So don't know what's happening there. Maybe they just had some spare time. But um, we'd been out in the meantime. So what are we now? Two months feels like two months into lockdown. And um, the anyone who's listening who's got an allotment or tried to get an allotment will know how long the lists are and how notoriously difficult it is to get an allotment. Um, I think that's the same across the whole country. Um, so we thought, right, um, one, we need food and we don't want to queue in supermarket queues and we want to bring more biodiversity in and around where we live. Let's dig up the grass verges. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed to. Did you go out and dig some up? Yeah, we just did some gorilla gardening and now we're like growing potatoes and spinach and beans. 
And, That's um, amazing. Don't tell me where, because I'll just come and steal them. <laughs> and I just thought, like, more of that, please. Because, and actually, the reason I said they did come on the mowers is they just went round it. I was like, yes, because there's no complaint through. There's no. Oh, really? They went round the bit that you that you planted. Yeah, they just yeah. thought there was something there, and like, we better not mow that down. I love the idea. I love the idea of like. Uh, Gorilla, Gorilla gardening. gardening, yeah. Well, fair play to Gemma. Sounds like she's doing an excellent job, and I found the I found all of that really interesting, guys. So uh, thank you for that. And don't forget, folks, we want you on the show. So if you're doing something similar to the stuff that, that Gemma was talking about, there, we'd love to hear from you. Now, next up, it's Chris's birds. <laughs> Chris's birds. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell my wife that's what that's what this bit's called. <laughs> Hi everyone, it's Chris here. Um we're gonna do a little feature now. Um hopefully it's something which we're gonna do for every episode. Uh that's the plan at least. Um and it's on bird song and how to uh how to identify uh birds. Um uh, to begin with, maybe we'll do other animals later by what they sound like and um uh i got some good advice once a long time ago from a bird watcher type dude who told me that if you want to find <clears throat> if you want to find birds you don't use your eyes you use your ears and ever since then i've been trying to learn every now and again some of the some of the more common or easily identifiable uh bird songs and bird calls um so yeah we're going to do a bit about a different species um in each episode starting today with possibly my favorite bird if not favorite animal the common swift now common swifts um sound like this It can be quite difficult to describe birdsong, um, which can uh, likewise make it, you know, difficult to remember. But for me, um, swifts sound as though they are screaming, and certainly, like that's the word that's used in a lot of um, a lot of creative writing and literature when it mentions swifts. Um, people talk about the screaming swifts. And the other sort of key identifier for for me, um, or, or or something that's unique about this particular bird song, is you will only ever hear it from up in the sky, because swifts spent all, nearly all of their lives up in the sky. I mean, they land to make uh, nests and lay eggs in people's roofs and you know old buildings and stuff like that. But they do everything else on the wing. They eat on the wing they sleep on the wing they make baby swifts on the wing um everything and you know, a fascinating thing about swifts is when they when they leave the nest for the first time um as young chicks you know first time fly out of the nest sometimes they won't land again for 18 months two years something like that they just spend the whole time flying around catching insects sleeping they can like turn half their brain asleep a lot of birds can do that um maybe dr gareth can tell us a bit more about that in a future episode but um 
yeah they do little micro sleeps on the wing but anyway to look at um, once you hear this call what you're looking for is a fast super super fast aerobatic bird that has big swept back sort of crescent shaped wings um they um people like sometimes confuse them with swallows and house martins and although they look they look fairly similar swifts are very dark brown um they have they do have a little forked tail but it's only a very very little forked tail nothing as 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 um pronounced as like in a swallow but, uh, but if they have any sort of patches of color or anything like that on them when you look at these birds um then they're not a swift um but again and the the point of this feature, I suppose, is like the key identifier for them, and the way that you'll 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 recognise that you know there are swifts in the area is that screaming screaming call. I love it when um when they when they fledge when they leave the nest um because uh, uh, they nest in like colonies in towns and stuff like in cities. Um, quite often the young ones will play you know they chase each other around in little groups of three four five six birds or sometimes more. And they whiz round in between the buildings, chasing each other, screaming their heads off at each other. So yeah, that's my bird call for this episode. Um, an animal which I hope to talk about a bit more maybe in the future. Um, but I'll leave you with that last playing again of, uh, of the common swift. Oh, amazing. Well, that's great. Thank you, Chris. And you're you dead right. Listening for nature is just as important as looking for it. And the swift, what a wonderful bird. It, it really is the sound of the summer. Yeah, it definitely is for me, Pete. But, you know, if you're out there and you've got a different sound of the summer and you want to share it with us, that's what this show's all about. We want you to share your sounds, your films, your stories, the things that are making you really excited about wildlife. Maybe you've got a fantastic beast that you want to come on the show and talk about. Maybe there's a special wild place like Pete of Dartmoor that you want to come and talk about. This is all about you coming to share the UK's fantastic wildlife. But how can they do that, Pete? Well, first of all, people can get hold of us through the, our Facebook page, which is called The Call of Nature. We've got a website, thecallofnature.co.uk, or you can get hold of us through Anchor FM, our hosts. Get hold of us on any of those routes and we'll get right back to you. We certainly will. Um, thanks very much for listening to episode one. Episode two should be out uh, pretty soon, next couple of weeks. We've already got some cool stuff lined up for that. So if you follow or subscribe or whatever it's called nowadays, um, you'll get a notification when episode two comes out. Uh, you could write it on a piece of paper and remind yourself, um, but that probably wouldn't be the best way to do it. Um, <laughs> Top tips. <laughs> that, yeah, yeah. So that's it. Thanks very much for listening and goodbye. <laughs>